to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Hello, I am so excited this week to introduce Dr. Amanda Kriegel, who's a clinical psychologist with Floor Time Atlanta and a mom. She's been on the board of directors with the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning, the home of DIR Floor Time for five years. And Morgan Weissman, who is an occupational therapist and a floor time consultant at the Rebecca School in Manhattan. And she also works with families privately through OccuPlay. Both are DIR or Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model DIR expert training leaders. So it is great to have you on. Welcome. Thank you so much for having us. We're very excited. <laughs> and I'm Daria Brown. And, um, you know, I created Affect Autism to help other parents learn about DIR floor time. And the first blog post was, it's all about affect. And that's why it's called Affect Autism. We use affect to affect our child's development and the topic for today is about genuine affect and bringing out our authentic selves with our children and about how that R or the relationship, the R in the DIR model, really is a vehicle um, in that process as well. So Amanda and Morgan both presented at the recent ICDL conference and as part of their presentation on the R, the relationship, the heart of DIR floor time, they also talked about genuine affect. So I'm a parent who had never known any much about autism or floor time until I was right in the heart of it with my, my son, my family. And when you do learn about floor time, I remember very specifically um, really watching videos and seeing Dr. Greenspan uh, interact with children and reading Engaging Autism and then trying to apply it <clears throat> and understand it. And then also my husband doing the same and having conversations with him, like how do we do this floor time with, with my child? And so one thing that um, I notice now that I work with parents in the ICDL Parent Support Group is we get a lot of new parents coming on and they say, I've read Engaging Autism, I've read all your blogs, I've listened to your podcasts, but I don't know what to do with my child. Uh, it's confusing. And we see a lot of floor time videos on YouTube or whatever, where it's that stereotypical kindergarten teacher who's great with kids using their affect, like, hi, sweetie, how are you today? Isn't that lovely? Oh, wow. And that is wonderful, warm, nurturing, caring, affective communication that is very natural for usually a, a young kindergarten woman teacher. And when my husband saw some of this stuff, he was like, I can't do that. I feel ridiculous. So we wanted to clear the air for parents and practitioners listening today and say, no, you do not have to be the sing-song kindergarten teacher if that's not who you are. So who would like to go first? Amanda, do you wanna start as a psychologist? Um, sure. Yes, um, I can start. So, you know, we, we talk about in the model and especially when, when people are first learning about how to do floor time about, you know, following the child's lead, but also enticing the child into a relationship or into a back and forth. And we're always like, you know, you got to use your good old friend affect. And something that I think Morgan and I have seen a lot um, is as training leaders and consulting and working with parents is that affect is this very big, loud, boisterous thing that gets a child's attention. Um, or it's, um, you know, like pratfalls or dropping things. It's, it's this if I do this, I know they'll come to me, which, you know, when you're first starting out, that's, that's great. You know, try anything. If you're, you know, working with a child who's very self-absorbed and very in their own world, and you've got to really up the ante to get them to acknowledge your existence, I'm all for it. However, I think what gets lost sometimes is, first of all, you know, then we tell people to do, you know, six times 20, 20, 20 minute sessions a day. 
at this energy level that is not natural, that is not authentic, that is not humanly capable <laughs> to do that. Um, and it, you're getting oftentimes more of a reaction from the child when you go really big and over the top and not necessarily a connection. So we really want to encourage people to figure out how to relate and interact and pull the child in using different types of affect, using matching to where the child is or joining where the child is rather than maybe just going really big and really high. Morgan? Yeah, that yeah. makes Oh, go ahead. Well, what I was gonna say is we spend so much time thinking about the child's profile, which is so important, but we also want to encourage parents and caregivers and therapists to also think about their own profile and think about their own style of communicating, not, not necessarily just with their child, but what they're like as a communicator across many different contexts. How do they use their body language to communicate? How do they use their voice to communicate? Are they a person who likes to talk a lot or are they a person who likes to be a little more passive and maybe use gestures and those are things that as, as parents, we also really want to think about. How are you going to be your most authentic self in this relationship with your child? Because our kids are so smart and so aware and they can tell, I think sometimes when we're putting on a show or doing something that maybe we're not comfortable with or even doing something that makes us feel exhausted. They're so aware and they really can pick up on those things. Yeah, and I, I really like how Amanda said you um, might be going over the top to get to draw them in. And that is what we want to do. We want to draw them into a shared world. Um, but doing that over the top, like, oh, hey, wow, what's that? Oh, that is so cool. That might be the initial thing to draw them in. But then I like how you said you're getting a reaction instead of a connection. I think uh, I'm going to put that in the blog post as a, a square with a quote from you. <laughs> uh, because I know that uh, Stephanie Peters, who works at the ICDL home program, um, said, yes, we want, we want, we do want to draw our children in, but we want to help our children learn that they can draw us in as well. And so you can't do that without the connection and the connection is that relationship. And I think, um, what you said, Morgan, about knowing your own profile really is, is key to that because if you can't just be yourself with your child, then it's going to be hard to have that genuine affect and that connection because they, they always know that, oh, you're acting funny around me, but you don't act that way around grandma and grandpa and you don't act that way around your sister or brother and you don't act that way around Mrs. So-and-so, but around me, you're acting strange. Yeah, and I, I um, have the opportunity to work with so many wonderful speech therapists at the Rebecca School and I really observe just the way that, that they communicate and use their own voice to work with students. And they just, they use a very natural cadence and rhythmicity in their voice when they're engaging with students across so many different profiles. So I think that floor time and affect doesn't always have to be that, <gasps> Or peek up, boo! It doesn't always have to be that. Sometimes it can be that, and sometimes it works really, really well, but that's not the only way you can use yourself and you can use affect to connect and relate. Yeah, and I think I wanna say two things about that. So um, for parents listening who might be just starting out and their children are in those early stages that Amanda described where 
It seems like they're not paying attention to you at all. It seems like they're in their own world, but, but they do want to connect. They just don't know how you're using some of that. And that's totally fine. So we're saying, we're not saying don't do wow. Because I know with my son to snap him out of some things, sometimes I have to do that. I'm like, Oh no, what happened? And then I get his attention and then sweetie, Hey, what were you thinking about this or whatever we, we get into? Um, so I, I want parents to know that, yeah, absolutely. You might need to use that over the top to pull in a child who's under responsive, but what about the parents whose children are 16, 17, 18, 19, 25, eight, nine, whatever. And they say, I, I, I can't be a baby, baby talk with my older child. And we're saying, that's not the point. Uh, when we say affect, we don't mean being over the top. We mean matching, um, connecting with your child. And so um, Amanda, can you describe a little bit more about how we do that? So uh, I think a lot of it is um, it, it's, it's time consuming and it, it has to do with, you know, I mean, I really, you know, feel like, you know, parents do know their children best. And um, I've been so fortunate to have been mentored by um, one of my many wonderful DIR mentors is Dr. Barbara Dunbar. And I did some parent training with her. And the first thing she would ask parents is, come back next week with a list of things where you do feel connected with your child, things that you feel, um, you know, are times where, you know, you have some nice, you know, back and forth and you feel like you're really present with one another. And we never had anyone come back and say, there's just none, you know, we would have it with some, you know, sometimes it would be during, you know, bath time. Sometimes it would be, you know, a closeness around, you know, reading books. Sometimes it would be chase and tickle. Um, with one family um, whose child was um, not, um, was like in a wheelchair, it was watching the leaves together and kind of ooing and eyeing about the leaves. Everyone was able with a very broad range of, of um, profiles to come back and say, oh, you know, when, when after diaper change, when I do little piggies, we are together. And building on what you already have, building on those those times where, oh, you know, it's, um, you know, they, they, they love swinging with me. And then if I start singing, you know, just anything, not extra loud, not extra silly, then I get, you know, a nice connection. Um, and so building on what's already there and then expanding from that. Yeah. Do you have I some examples too, Morgan? Thinking about finding shared interests and experiences together. And, and that takes sometimes a little bit of work because it's not just the interest of the caregiver or it's not just the interest of the child. Both are really important. And now we have to think about how we're going to kind of bring this together and get both parties interested and attuned in one of each other's interests or a new experience or a new interest together. And even something simple like learning the melody of a theme song that a child likes and kind of just humming it lets the child know that, oh, like they're, they're interested in what I'm interested in. And that feels really good that somebody else is interested in my interest and wants to learn more. Yeah, I, I know it's um, my son lately has been interested in Mario Kart. He just learned how to play video games during the shutdown this past year. And so now we have a playlist. So if we ever have to drive anywhere, which isn't too often anymore, we have on the Mario Kart songs on the playlist, but he has this new favorite one that I think it's called Mushroom City. And so he's now started sort of humming it around the house. Um, he just goes, da, 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 or whatever. And then all sort of hum a little bit back. And then he'll continue and, and I'll just do it quietly because if I start singing, he always says, don't sing, mama. <laughs> so he, he likes to be the director. Dr. Greenspan always said, let your child be the director. So I don't want to take over and start singing the whole song, but just sort of let him know like, oh, I know that song you're singing. That's, that's fun. So 
I, I like that you gave that example too, because it made me think of that. But um, yeah, I think that uh, what you said, Amanda, echoes what Eunice Lee said in past podcasts I've done with her, where, you know, she had a parent who put the child on the swing and, and the swing was going and the mother just couldn't stay regulated. And she realized because the mother was, was making the mother dizzy. And so you can't do floor time if you're uncomfortable yourself. Yeah. And Daria, what a great example of kind of that routine that you've created in the car where you listen to this music together and that creates that predictability of that routine. We're going in the car, we're going to listen to music together. There's this playlist of these beautiful songs that you like. And maybe you also have some of your, the songs that you like. Maybe you slide in one of your songs and that starts to slowly now become like, this is, this is our routine. We, we do this together and just creating those experiences in your everyday routines is really helpful. And it's a nice organic way to do it, right? We don't have to always have this like scheduled sensory diet at this time, at this time we do this. And at this time we do that. We want to create opportunities for families to get this, these floor time times in just naturally throughout their day without having to change their own schedules and routines. Yeah, and the theme of the ICDL conference in November was something like floor time everywhere all the time. And um, I, I don't think I realized how much I do that until I gave the presentation and people started chatting comments um, in the chat box during the presentation of my video of doing floor time in the car and stuff. Um, but yeah, it, it really hit me that it is just exactly what Dr. Tippy told me one of the first times I ever talked to him. 99% is the relationship. It's all about the R. And um, you just gave me some great ideas to playfully challenge and, you know, nudge my son's development a little further um, of what I can do. Because right now he has the songs and then, you know, he'll think of a new level from the game and he'll say, I want you know, uh, whatever level, and then I have to look it up in Spotify and add it to the playlist. And then as the playlist is going, I'll be driving and, and I'm a natural multitasker. So it, it's not much for me to just like, while I'm driving, I don't even have to look, I can shift to the next song, but he's like, no, next song, mama. No, I don't want that song. Next song, mama. No, I don't want that song. Next song. Mama. So constantly shifting. And then I'll say occasionally like, no, 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 I can't. I'm driving. I can't switch it right now. Um, but having the addition of one of my songs too, because there have been times when we've been on road trips that are long that I say, okay, mama needs her music now because um, I'm a huge music fan. I have tons of playlists in my Spotify. And when I'm start to get sleepy in the car, like I need to blast my music and sing along to just stay alert and drive. And then he is a sensory seeker. So it doesn't overwhelm him to hear all the music and stuff, or at least you know, it might overwhelm them after a while, but um, incorporating that into our daily routine where I say, your turn, my turn, your turn, my turn, and maybe I will throw a couple of my songs in there because he's going to say, no, I want my song. And then I'll say, oh, okay, back to your song, but slowly nudging into where he can be tolerant of maybe someone else wants to hear something different. It's not all what I want all the time. Yeah, and even like using your affect in that moment, like, oh, how did that get on here? I didn't, yep. I didn't know that was going to come on and, and kind of being silly with it. And I love what you said about how sometimes you need your music to stay alert, right? We want to encourage parents and caregivers to also really consider their needs because they need to take care of their needs in themselves so that they can be the best play partner and most available. Well, and then in, oh, in the same vein to hang with, oh, okay, okay, but, but I just need to hear this part. I just, I just got to hear this one, this one, just wait till they drop the beat and then I'll, then I'll switch it. I've actually done that before. <laughs> uh -huh. I mean, and it, sometimes it'll go well and sometimes it won't, but you're related and engaged in the, in the activity. Um, mm -hmm. I, think, I think one of the hardest things about, about floor time, and I will say this, you know, as a parent myself is some of what we do is very counterintuitive. 
you know, we ask people to rock the boat. We ask you to put challenges, you know, out there that, that might go horribly wrong and lead to dysregulation. And for, for someone that you have a strong relationship with, and I think this was a real gist of what Morgan and I talked about at the conference, um, when you have a strong R, then you can take more risks. You can repair that rupture. But, you know, when you're first starting out, like people who are listening who might be clinicians, you've got to let the child be the director. You have to hang in their world for quite a while before you can be like, you know, I'm really tired of playing trains. You know, I, 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 oh, not trains again. Um, even if you end up playing trains, but just putting that challenge in that maybe you're not elated about playing trains that day. Um, because that's authentic and that's real. Um, so. Yeah, a couple of things. Uh, Dr. Kathy Platzman, who's a colleague of yours at Floor Time Atlanta, um, called Mentor. it pen pennies in the bank. Yes. And um, she we probably got it. Yeah, she probably got it from somewhere else herself. Um, but the more, and what she means by that for people who haven't heard it is the more you are connected, you have these, it's like having pennies in the bank with that person. So um, my son will tolerate me maybe being a little bit angry and frustrated um, and, you know, um, for a longer period than he would tolerate dad being so because he feels more connected to mom on the emotional level. Now, if it's video games, forget it. Mom, get out of here. Dad's the one that knows everything. I don't know a thing about it. I don't watch it. I don't play them. But having those pennies in the bank allows you to challenge and playfully obstruct and, as you said, play confused and and what you said, Morgan, um, was what Jackie Bartell said in our, our It's All About Affect podcast uh, that we had done or something like that. Um, that I'll, I'll link to in the blog post at affectautism.com for this podcast. She said, uh, nonsense. It's about silliness and nonsense. And, you know, people say, and even, even in the podcast I did with uh, John Carpente, the music therapist, he said, people think nonsense and fun isn't therapy. And you do see parents coming in thinking, well, I need to be teaching my kids something. I need to be doing something. And um, sometimes it is just about nonsense and being silly and saying, oh, you know, I, I have those pennies in the bank with my son. So I can say, oh, wait, 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 I just want to hear this one part. And he will actually, instead of blowing up and saying, no, he'll actually wait. And that is something that he couldn't have done four or five years ago, like Amanda said, like you may have to be in their world for a long time. And in, in my case, it was like a few years. Um, but the other thing that I thought of what, from what you guys said is you have that relationship building, you, you're doing all these effective things. And I think I consciously and intentionally thought I'm doing floor time in a lot of those moments Whereas now it's gotten to the point where I am being more of my genuine self. So I might not have felt that I could because I'm walking on eggshells around my child. I don't want him to blow up and have a temper tantrum. I, I wouldn't dare say, wait, wait, wait. I love this song. I just want to hear the beginning. And then I'm going to change it for you. I wouldn't have dreamed of doing that four, four or five years ago, but I, I did do it like in the past year. Um, Oh, yeah, yeah. Hold on, sweetie. I just want to hear this song. And I said it to him in the way I would have said it to my husband or a friend um, instead of using my mom voice like, oh, sweetie, I'm just going to do this, which I also use a lot. But I'm, I'm feeling like I'm coming into more of my genuine self the more that I'm comfortable with my son and, and the more that our relationship solidifies and the further his development goes along. I threw a lot out there. <laughs> no, I love it. I love, I love the idea of like, you know, wait, listen with me for the beat to drop. Yeah. Yeah. You know, even bringing him into it, you know, and that might be, might not be the time for that yet, but again, it's just different, you know, things to think about. Yeah. And thinking about those beginning sessions when you're really starting to learn about the profile and think about the intention and the meaning behind what the child is showing you, starting to also think about 
again, your own profile. And we, it all goes back to the interoception of also of ourselves. What is our bodily states telling us? And what do we need? How do we need to set up the environment or what kind of modifications do we need so that we can be the best version of ourselves for this child and for this child's profiles. So if somebody really doesn't want to sit and play trains because they're more of an energetic person, but they know that they're going into that session with the child who's going to want to sit on the floor and play trains, maybe they take a walk before their session, right? Or maybe they do a little bit of a quick aerobic exercise if there's someone who likes to move and has a, a harder time sitting down, really thinking about what they need to prepare their, their own selves so that they can best meet the child where they are. Right. Jackie Bartell says she can't start the day without her run or walk in the morning. And Miss Maud LaRue says, I can't start my day if I don't have my coffee. <laughs> so we all have things that we need and, and trying to, I mean, Dr. Tippy says sometimes like, you know, we're talking all about floor time and that it's really just being with your child in a developmental way, the way that parents have raised children for years and years and years. Like, um, but you know, um, if, if you just say that, then, then people say, well, then why do I have to do DIR floor time if I'm just being myself? But the fact is that our culture and society has moved so much away from that into such a behavioral based after World War II and all those behavior studies, like why did the Holocaust happen and all the social studies around conformity and that and everything, everything turned behavioral after that. And it's still in our culture that we need to control our children's behavior. And so it's become uh, uh, the point where some people still have those natural instincts and some people might have them, but they doubt them. And other people are just straight, straight up uh, behavioral. And we really have to remind them that development happens in this way and children need to play and have fun and connect with us before they learn all of these other skills. Yeah, there, um, there's been a, such a switch, I think, um, in the paradigm, paradigm of, you know, away from social emotional development towards, you know, test scores and, and intellectual development and school readiness. Um, and having, you know, I now have two teenagers. So I was kind of in the in the front lines in the US of this like, you know, common core and, you know, they did three years of teaching everything one way. And then they're like, oh, this isn't working. And they switched everything to another way. And then thank goodness my child got a fourth grade teacher who had a sensory friendly classroom that just chilled everybody out. You know, we had some good experiences along the way, but it's very hard for parents not to see everything as a teaching moment. There's this huge responsibility to this being that you've brought into the world that, you know, oh, you know, we're playing and I'm going to ask you about colors or I'm going to ask you to count them. Or my favorite expression, Morgan, is, you know, how to end a floor time session really fast is to ask a kid, what does the cow say? You know, mm -hmm. what does the cow say? Morgan? Moo. <laughs> End of story. I mean, that, 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 that doesn't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. That's not meaningful. That's not, I mean, you can do some great floor time around the cow, but when it's, when it's question and answer, fill in the blank, not being, you know, but, but doing, you know, oh, I got to make sure my kids well behaved. I've got to make sure my kids, oh, do you need to go to the potty? Do you need you know do this? And there's so much anxiety about, you know, I think for parents and for teachers and for anyone in schools about, you know, they've got to look just so, and it doesn't give any leeway for just that huge curve of growth and a natural experience of just relating back and forth with another person. It's funny you, you say that. Um, about the cow because the speech department at the Rebecca school a few years ago they did a presentation called what if the cow doesn't say moo and I just I thought that was so brilliant and just such a great way to kind of explain to parents or even people newer to the model about 
not asking questions that there's a specific answer to, right? That's what Dr. Greenspan always wanted us to do. Ask questions where there is no right or wrong answer because we also wanna kind of see what's going on with our children's inner thoughts and their inner world and what, what meaning means to them and, and really what, what they're thinking. And then so often it can produce a lot of anxiety for children when they think there's a right answer. And that oh, wow. can really prevent them from communicating and feeling comfortable in expressing their ideas. So in, in floor time, there's no wrong ideas. That's what we always tell parents and even students. There's no wrong idea. What are you thinking? We want to know. Share with us. It, it was definitely a hurdle for me. If I watched the videos with my son when he was a baby, I'm teaching in every single moment, like, square this is a square oh where does this go oh it goes here and oh red blue you know and and they can learn all that by just memorizing all of that but what we want to focus on is relating back and forth can they continue to communicate with us back and forth in a long chain and sequence and continue that sustain that connection for a period of time and morgan i wanted to cycle back to you um about parents who have older children um, and, you know, maybe they're 17, 18, 19, maybe they're 20, maybe they're non-speaking, maybe they are speaking, but when they see floor time, what do they think and how do we explain to them this process? Yeah, absolutely. I think sometimes when they hear floor time, they probably picture that image of a baby and caregiver on the floor face to face with blocks. And I wonder what that experience is like for parents of older teens or even young adults. But really, I always like to go back with parents and um, teachers and clinicians and asking them, what is the most enjoyable thing that you do with the child or you do with the individual? When, like you said, Daria, when do you feel the most connected? And that can be so many different things, right? It, it could be building blocks. That might be something that's really fun for the child. It could be drawing together, but it also could be sitting on the couch and watching the baseball game. And it, maybe it's something that you really both share together and you have those beautiful moments of gesturing to the screen, or maybe you have a special cheer or high five every time your player gets a home run or, Maybe there's the seventh inning stretch that you guys do together. Just whatever that experience means to you and when you feel the most connected. And that's going to be unique to each family and each individual across different relationships, right? Like you mentioned, your son does different things with you than he does with dad. And that's, those are all relationships. Yeah. And um, just using affect to continue to sustain the back and forth interactions. Um, I think that's, that's the biggest hurdle for people to figure out. And I know uh, Dr. Robert Nassif, who's a psychologist in Philadelphia and who I've done a couple of podcasts with brought up in the last podcast with him that he has in his support group for dads, he sees that dads are, people that stereotypically want to solve problems. And so it's harder for them to use affect with their children. But then he sees the dads doing it with their animals, with their pets, with the dogs. He'll see the way they interact with the dogs is very playful and they're using their affect. And we, we just want to get them to think that way um, about their children too, and not to treat their children like animals, you know what I mean? But just to, to be more relaxed and playful with their children instead of needing to be this figure who's solving problems and making everything right. Like just relax and be playful with your kids in the same way. Yeah. I, also, I think about the learning tree, Dr. Greenspan's learning tree mm -hmm. with um, the roots, the trunk, the leaves and the branches and the fruit, and then the affect represented as the sun. And mm. that is just such a reminder to me that affect enhances everything. It's not just used when you're working on the sensory systems. It's not just used at these capacities. It's used 
for everything. The affect that you bring to any situation is what will enhance and I think create that meaning and an intention. Yeah, and and I know that at the ICL conference, I think it was at the clothing, closing ceremonies, the um, Jeff Gunzel, who's the head of ICDL, had said uh, it really was a light bulb moment for him when he realized he stopped doing things for his kids and started being with his kids. So doing for versus being with and just enjoying experiences together. Um, and along the, that line, I wanted to bring up um, English as a second language, because I know that something I remember reading in Engaging Autism and Dr. Greenspan had, you know, parents would come and say, I, I don't want to speak in my native language with my child because their speech is already delayed. And he always said, no, like speak in your native language, because that's where you have the most affect. And I remember in my ICDL coursework, one of my case studies was with a woman who had English as her second language and her husband spoke a different language and they were speaking English together, both their second languages with their child. And uh, when she did the video, um, you know, it, she, she was a little bit stiff and, and not, didn't seem super relaxed until at one point the child did something that prompted her to sing a song in her native language. And all of a sudden you see this natural person, the way she really, who she really is. And, um, and Dr. Greenspan encouraged parents to have that affective interaction with their children, regardless uh, of the language. It's not about teaching the children speech and language. It's about that connection and making those social back and forths because the language follows later. Did you guys want to comment on that at all? I, just, I think it's a great parallel to this um, concept of authenticity and, you know, um, how trying, thinking something is right or wrong kind of sometimes gets in the way of where, where is the connection richer? Um, and, you know, the fact that she, you know, when she was in her native language, the child you know, her warmth and her presence and her being was probably in its most authentic state. And then the child is also reading that as well. Um, so it kind of, it kind of opens the door to different ways for different people, how that might be. Yeah. yeah and more, I imagine in New York City, you have a lot of diversity of your students and children who hear different languages at home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's definitely always something we're considering all the time and, and not just language, but also thinking about culture and affect and what that looks like and really learning more about families and their backgrounds and their experiences and what language they use at home as well as how their language conveys something because that's really important that we're learning about that and also incorporating that into their program, as well as thinking about that when we are working with families and coaching parents. And it goes back to we don't want people to floor time the same as as us or we want them to really find their own authentic voice and what works for them and their family unit and just really that big picture. Yeah, and, and back to the kids really picking up on that. I can think of times when um, we were not in lockdown <laughs> and we would always go to layout tours at people's homes. And so a layout tour is um, a person who has a model train set up in their basement usually, and they have all these tours and we've been on like probably 50 to a hundred of them literally. And we go to all these people's houses and what always stuck out with my son was when someone screwed up. So what I mean by screwed up is, the train derailed and the owner gets all flustered because, you know, he set everything up to be perfect. And as soon as the guests come, the train, you know, derails or doesn't work or something. And one of the guys said, oh, come on. And my son to this day, like that was like four years ago to this day, if something comes up, he'll say, oh, come on, because <laughs> that stuck with him. Like he's like, oh, there's a genuine reaction to something that happened that was fl frustrating and that affect 
uh, popped out at him and he thought it was hilarious. And he uses that. So, um, you know, I used to try and I mean, of course, as adults, we always have to censor ourselves around our kids to some degree. some people more than others, depending on uh, if you have potty mouths or not. But, um, you know, I, I find when I censor myself less and I, I'm just letting myself be upset by things and my, my son sees that and, he, and then he'll ask, oh, what, why did, what did you say, mama? And I'll say, oh, I'm so frustrated because I thought it was going to be this and this happened. And And that's a learning experience for him because he sees like, this is how people experience things. (laughs) Right. And that's how you learn feelings and emotions, right? By Mm -hmm. seeing them and and mirroring them in other people and being able to have experiences in different contexts. That's like that meaning making. That's how you learn feelings and emotions. And so often we see um, even in early learning centers, teaching emotions with these like emoji charts or um, Amanda shaking her head and these like feeling charts and that's not developmentally how emotions and feelings are are usually are learned by humans yeah my my last podcast with Dr. Glavinsky we talked about that and the difference between cognitively understanding what an emotion is which might be a starting entry point but knowing what it is viscerally, like you mentioned, the interoception, what does that feeling in my body feel like to really be angry or to really be super excited or to really be hungry or anything? Um, yeah. But yeah, just having, um, yeah, I, I know um, my son will say sometimes he'll say, so-and-so at school was in the red zone <laughs> because, you know, he's learned that those zones but he's starting to understand. And I've tried to supplement that at home by saying like, oh, he must have been upset about something, you know, what happened? And, and to try and get him to feel that. And, and they do facilitate that. Um, and those programs, I think they're, they're valuable, right? But they're kind of, I look at them kind of as accessories, mm-hmm. right? They, they enhance the effective-based emotional learning that we do and and in that moment when your son's talking about his classmate being in the red zone I also think about like well what is he thinking about I wonder what the experience was like for him to see his peer in the red zone right it's there's just so much more meaning behind really I think what can be conveyed through a a picture or a color right and I'm imagining people watching the podcast seeing Amanda roll her eyes at the mention of the emotion stuff. And, and, and that um, is a read of affect as well. So did you want to elaborate on that? Well, I think, I think what, I think something that I, it's very important. And um, I know Morgan and I brought it up um, in our presentation is that, you know, affect isn't, first of all, isn't all like happy, go lucky, high excitement, you know, affect is scary. Affect is, is anticipation, affect is sad, affect is angry. Um, and so part of, I think, using your, you know, being authentic and when we do it through play, you know, yes, we're playing out something. So we might not necessarily be upset or angry, but we're trying to create an experiential safe experience. But in that vein, if the child wants to lock all the bad guys in the jail, we're not going to say, oh, no, honey, that's not nice because the child needs to lock all the bad guys in the jail because that's coming from somewhere and that's mm-hmm. something they need to work out. Um, and so, you know, social emotional growth isn't just just happy because, I mean, that's not realistic. Um, and then I do, I roll my eyes about the... Um, about the charts and things, because I agree with Morgan. I think that they are an accessory. They can be helpful. And I totally agree with Dr. Glavinsky as, you know, a cognitive understanding of emotions is, is, a, is a doorway. But I think that all children, and I'm a person who kind of believes that at least the majority of autistic people that I have met have a tendency to be overly empathetic 
rather than this idea of, you know, lockdown and not wanting to relate. They're feeling feelings very deeply, very strongly. And the coping mechanism is meltdowns as a child and shut down by the time it's been shut down by everyone else around them. And I don't mm -hmm. think this is healthy. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's, I think it's a piece that got, has gotten very much missed in the psychological literature and in the treatment and intervention um, over the past several years is, is this, they're not accessible to take in the emotions or they're not, you know, they don't want to have relationships or they're not feeling it. My gut is it's, and from talking to autistic adults, it's the, oh no, you know, you guys are all like pinging out all this stuff left and right and I'm sucking it all in. And there's a point where I got to draw the line. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's why I think it's kind of, first of all, I think we're not really presuming competence to be like, oh, use your words, angry face, you know, that someone might not know what that is. But I, I think it's much better supported experientially, just like your son, seeing that train derail, seeing that grown up have a real authentic reaction. And then he like applies it going forward than stopping someone in a feeling, telling them to get out of feelings, get in your brain, look at a chart, pick a picture. Well, then now what are we gonna do? It's a lot of steps too. When we think about motor plan. a huge amount of, of sequencing and. Yeah, and yeah. It, it all comes back to infancy and what we know about affect, right? Infants, babies can start to read affect very, very early on in life, like just a few weeks at just a few weeks old, I think I was listening to a course and it was um, a Kim Barthel course. And she talked about how one of the first affects that a child reads or micro expressions is disgust. And I thought that was so <laughs> interesting. And it was, it's just a few weeks after birth. It's very early on. And it's almost like we go from this place of, oh, it's hard for, the person to read nonverbal cues. So we're going to go right to this cognitive place and like teaching. Yeah. Instead of like, whoa, 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 let's go, let's go back and figure out how we're going to use affect and think about the person's sensory systems and their communications and their preferences, right? Everything DIR. And of course the relationship, the most important piece to support them in reading affect so that they can be a communicator and not just a communicator verbally, of course, it doesn't, it doesn't have to just be verbal, but to be a communicator who can send signals to get their emotional and physical and cognitive needs met. So let's wrap up with some takeaways for parents who might be struggling with this. And I think a good one that you mentioned is the cue reading and cue sending. Uh, the recent podcast I did with Colette Ryan all about that. I'll link to that in the um, blog post for, for this podcast. Um, Amanda started off by saying, and, and Morgan too, like what, what things do you like to do with your child? When do you feel the most connected with your child? And so when a parent says that, what's the next step then? How do you build on that if they, they're still feeling really stuck? Um, so I would, I would try to create more times to have those experiences and and to build on those so I mean obviously you can't you know if it's bath time you're not going to do like five baths a day but then you know you know okay maybe maybe you know doing play around water or um some other aspects you know kind of it's I don't want to give like a do this and then do that because mm -hmm. everything is so individualized but I think drawing attention to that warmth and connection for, for the parent or the caregiver is important. And, um, you know, trying to bring those things more into other um, kind of parts of the day. Yeah, and I think that's where video is really useful, especially videoing those moments if it's not too intrusive or wouldn't be disruptive of the interaction. And then being able to kind of go back and watch that video 
and think about it, bringing it back to your teams and thinking about well, what about this experience supports their sensory profile or is pleasurable? Or what about what kind of affect does this experience create? Because going back to the baseball, right? There's some predictability with baseball, right? You throw the ball and then somebody hits it. There's also some high affect cheer. If we, if you have big fans and they're all on the couch, right? That that might be what's pleasurable and exciting to your child. And then also thinking about, of course, their motor planning and their language, really thinking about those specific activities and how it relates to the whole profile. And that's where I think having video as well as having a team or a coach to come back and reflect with. And I think the trial and error as well is a big piece of that. Um, talked about this in many podcasts, you know, learning how to attune to your child with those, looking at those cues and all the things that you just said, what, what is it that my son loved about hearing the guy go, Oh, come on, that I could then pull into my life every day. Well, maybe I'll, um, you know, have a play session where I, by accident, I'm knocking things over a lot. And, Oh, I'm so clumsy. I knocked that over again. Oh man. Um, and just getting that fun interaction to keep, um, keep the play and enjoyable time together about being about us, as opposed to if I left the room and the individual was just fine being on their own, continuing the activity, we want it to be, we want to see that they're, they're happier interacting with us and how do we prolong those interactions um, in a way that feels natural and that you feel comfortable being yourself and that uh, overlaps with your child being themselves. Does that sound about right? <laughs> it does. And, and it, it reminds me of, um, I happen to be working with a lovely family right now and um, the dad can join, joins in with his son beautifully. They're doing some beautiful play, but I notice a lot that sometimes when dad joins in, the son's doing his thing, the dad's doing his thing and they're not really together. And so really encouraging, um, you know, parents and caregivers when you're joining in, make sure they know you're in. And this doesn't mean you come in like a wrecking ball. This just means, you know, if you're adding a piece of the Lego, you're kind of, you know, gesturing upwards, you know, oh, I've got this big, you know, square one, it's going to go right here. And getting that attention and getting either whether it's visual, not eye contact, but just gaze, um, whether it's tactile, you know, just kind of that reminder of, you know, I'm joining you, but I'm here too. Mm-hmm. Um, that reminds me of, of Dr. Tippy's great tip about using anticipation as much as possible, because um, I even was um, in a session where a caregiver was playing with a new toy that the child received um, for, I think it was over the holidays, received this toy where you put uh, pieces over a pole, like similar to those games where babies put the rings on the pole, but it was a little bit more elaborate and, and fun. And um, I was suggesting like, can you playfully obstruct that process because the child loves this toy so much. And um, then they came back and said they, they had a roll from a paper towel roll and they put it on top of it. So now there was no room for the pieces to go. And the, the kid picked it up and whipped it across the room. And like, that's great. I said, that's perfect. That's what you can now use for anticipation because you can now take that role. And next time you're playing, you can say, can I put this on? And you don't, like you said, coming in as a wrecking ball, you know that the child threw it across the room. So you're not going to come in and put it on and sort of tease the child. That's the child's going to get angry. But if you're, you kind of come and say, put this on and the child will say, or whatever. And you'll say, oh, oh, okay. You don't want this on. And you make that the interaction. And then you say, oh, please, I just want to put it on for a second. Please, please, please. 
nope, okay, no, nope, you don't want me to. Oh, okay, I won't do that. Um, then can I have a turn? Can I put that piece on or whatever it is? Um, just having those interactions where you're being playful, you're being authentic. Um, yeah, and it goes back to that trial and error piece that you spoke about mm -hmm. before. And I think just reminding people to keep trying and as long as you're being kind and respectful and trying to understand the individual's point of view, keep keep trying. And then along with the trial and error, keep trying, being kind to yourself. So if it doesn't work one day, that's okay. Maybe you try the same thing again the next day. Maybe it will work tomorrow. Or if it doesn't work one day, you think about why it, why it didn't work, but also recognizing that as human beings, we all have different um, emotions. And especially right now, like we all have our good days, we all have our bad days. It doesn't necessarily mean there's like regression. I don't, I never understand when people, people look at it like that, you know, it's just, it's just different and it's just the day and it's just where you are in that moment. And I think thinking about um, the child and the adults that we work with, as well as thinking about ourselves. Yep. Any last words, Amanda? Um, just that, you know, this is not, um, it's not easy, but parents know their children and you know, if you're working in a program or you're working with, you know, um, other clinicians, you know, our job is to help you tease out, you know, ways to support and ways to support you um, to make sessions more successful, but to, to be okay with using a range of emotions and and really lean on the fact that you have this relationship and this connection with your child um and that is that is really that is our modality of support is building strong relationships and going from there that are trusting and safe and familiar and within that cocoon you can play and test and and um all of the things that we talked about and to trust your gut when it's not a good day to do it. Mm -hmm. Don't feel like you're holding your child back if it's not a good day to push or challenge or it's a good day to just let them, you know, so, uh, someone needs to, to, you know, take a brain break. It's, we all do. Right, right. Any last words, Morgan? It's funny you said trust your gut because that's exactly what I was thinking about, Amanda, that that the gut and the heart, right, that is so related. We know all the work of Dr. Porges with the vagus nerve, like your heart and your gut. Trust your heart, trust your gut, and keep keep doing what you're doing. Yep. So you don't need to be an over-the-top um, with affect. You might need to sometimes, you don't need to be, um, you, you don't need to necessarily think that you're not doing enough or doing too much. Just relax about what you need to be doing. Focus more on just being with your child, having that loving relationship where you feel comfortable together and just find things that you like to do together and that your child enjoys when you're there. Do what you have to do to try and be playful and enjoy your child's company in those moments and just being um, authentic, loving and responsive. It sounds. Yeah, what a beautiful way to describe that. <laughs> okay, well, for, for those listening or watching on the YouTube link, the link to the blog post is below. For those listening, affectautism.com, it'll be under genuine affect or look up Dr. Kriegel or Morgan Weissman, and you will find links to the past podcasts that I referred to and other things that we talked about. 
And thank you both for taking the time to discuss this with us today. And we also have a bonus, the PDF of Morgan and Amanda's presentation they did at ICDL, which is the heart of DIR floor time, the R. Um, and you can look at that at the site as well. So thank you so much again. Thank you so much for having us. Thank, and you. thank you to everyone who's listening for um, working in and committing to a relationship-based approach. It's Absolutely. If you're a caregiver looking to implement your own floor time approach, please check the ICDL parent website at the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning for a virtual floor time consultation or for the weekly parent support meetings. We aim to help you implement your program at home using the Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model, or DIR, taking into account your child's developmental level, their individual differences, and using your relationship with them to help promote and support their development. Until next time, here's to affecting autism through play.